0: Tonight at the University of Sydney, Professor Noam Chomsky uh, will be awarded Australia's only International Prize for Peace. Last night, Noam Chomsky delivered the City of Sydney Peace Prize Lecture in the Sydney Town Hall. Now, Noam Chomsky, as you know, has been leading at least three very busy, distinguished lives. Linguist, philosopher and political activist. A great number of questions were submitted to the Opera House for this session and they fell into about a, uh, broadly a dozen categories and I'm going to put a question to Professor Chomsky in each category that will attempt to reflect the thrust, the main thrust of your interests Uh, and we will also try and take some questions from the floor later in the interests of free speech. Now, Noam Chomsky is Institute Professor and Emeritus Professor in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at MIT. Among other things, that means that he can supervise PhDs in any faculty. Hailed even by his critics as arguably the most important intellectual alive, he ranks with Marx, Shakespeare, and the Bible as one of the 10 most quoted sources in the humanities. In addition, to his significant work in linguistics and philosophy, though he is celebrated for his unfailing moral courage and the inspiration and oxygen he has given globally to the cause of peace with justice. Please welcome the 2011 recipient of the Sydney Peace Prize, Noam Chomsky. Welcome to Australia Nome. Glad to be here. Uh, in your lecture last night, you essentially talked about an integral part of what constitutes a civilised human being. You said one of the great moral and universal responsibilities is to address injustice and the grievances that are at the heart of much violence, and in particular to cease to be complicit on crimes for which we share responsibility. And you also reminded us that our wealth, in no small measure, derives from the tragedy of others, that we support dictators when it suits us and uh, happily set aside the rule of law uh, when we've had a change of heart. And my question is this. How can we reconcile what you're advocating with the three most frequently used words to engender unquestionable public legitimacy? the national interest, indeed given that so many of our problems are global, how are they to be tackled when we are each uh, protecting our national interests?
1: Well, that's an interesting term, national interest. Uh, Of course, it's the core notion of uh, academic international relations theory, so-called realist international theory, international relations theories based on the concept that uh, states pursue their national interest. It's always seemed to me that the concept is very far from realistic, in fact, has a touch of mysticism about it. It assumes that there's a common national interest uh, shared by everyone in the country. So the CEO of General Electric and the janitor who cleans the floor have the same interest. Well, actually, they have very different interests, often sharply conflicting interests. It turns out that the interest of the CEO is what ends up being the national interest, not the janitor. Uh, So it's a a concept that relates to elite conceptions of what's in their interest. And if you look closely, that's the way it's actually used. Well, there are some shared interests, of course, like uh, not being uh, destroyed by, uh say, destruct- uh, destruction of the environment or by nuclear war. Well, what about those interests? Uh, how do we protect them? Uh, suppose, for example, it was uh, determined that uh, the Australian national interest, in this sense, uh, could be advanced by uh, enslaving the population of sub-Saharan Africa and sending them to work under miserable conditions in mines uh, owned by Australian companies. I suppose that that increased the wealth of Australia and hence its national interest. Uh, Should we, should you therefore be in favor of it? Well, I think if we took a vote among people of Australia, uh, very few would be in favor of it. And I should say that this is not really a hypothetical example. So after the Second World War, uh, when the United States was in a position of just overwhelming power, uh, I won't go into the details, but there was nothing like it in history, and uh, planners knew it, and they uh, made detailed, sophisticated plans to organize the world so that it would serve the what they took to be the American national interest, and uh, they assigned every region of the world its what they called its function. So, for example, the function of Southeast Asia. Uh, was to provide uh, resources uh, and uh, uh, raw materials for the former colonial powers so that they could then reconstruct, uh, which was in the American national interest, and uh, uh, be allies and uh, uh, purchase uh, a U.S. manufacturing surplus, which was enormous at the time, and so on. Well, as they went around the world, this was incidentally George Kennan and his policy planning staff at the State Department, uh, when they got to Africa, uh, they decided that the United States is not particularly in, interested in Africa, but we are interested in the reconstruction of Europe, so we will hand over Africa to the Europeans to exploit, the term they used, hand it over to the Europeans to exploit, uh, so th- to help in their reconstruction. Well, that these are the liberal Democrats we're talking about. The, George Kennedy himself was considered so, so dovish he was soon thrown out of the State Department, considered uh, too soft-hearted for this harsh world. Well, do we accept that? Thinking back, is it correct? Uh, would Americans then even have said that it's right to hand over Africa to Europe to exploit for its reconstruction? Uh, not many would accept that, I hope. Uh, certainly not now. And those are real issues. Uh, if it turns out to be in the so-called mostly mythical national interest to exploit, uh, harm, and destroy others, is that a conflict? I mean, are we in a conflict about whether to accept it or not? I don't really think so.
0: Uh, no, the election of Obama engendered a lot of hope in the U.S. and internationally. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, the Rambo-style execution of Osama bin Laden under a Democrat president came as a, a disappointment uh, and surprise, at least, to some. Uh, Guantanamo Bay hasn't been shut down. Has the post-911 uh, neo-conservative agenda been more successful, more entrenched and pervasive than you anticipated?
1: I frankly did not share the uh, uh, hopefulness when Obama was elected. I thought it was mostly illusion. In fact, I wrote about it even before the primaries, just basing myself on his record, his web page, and so on. So this is not entirely afterthoughts. Nevertheless, it was worse than I expected. So I did not expect things like... uh, uh, in, In many ways, it's worse than Bush's programs. And that's been pointed out by conservative uh, military uh, analysts. So for example, take, say, like Guantanamo Bay. Uh, Bush's program was to his way of dealing with suspects. And let me stress suspects. There used to be a principle in uh, Anglo-American legal tradition that people are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. So the term suspects is correct. Uh, the Bush approach to suspects was to kidnap them, uh, send them to uh, Bagram or Guantanamo, essentially torture chambers, and keep them there without uh, charges indefinitely. That's pretty awful. Uh, uh, Why, incidentally, did they send them to Guantanamo uh, rather than to, say, Kansas? It nothing to do with security. It's ridiculous. It's because they anticipated That Guantanamo would be regarded by the courts as outside of the uh, applicability of American laws. Actually, the Supreme Court, even the conservative Supreme Court, disappointed them on that uh, and did rule that they have habeas corpus rights and so on, limited rights. Well, that was the Bush program. Kidnap suspects, uh, no matter whether you know anything about them or not, uh, send them to torture chambers, and then Uh, maybe have uh, military trials, which are no trials at all. Uh, Obama's expanded that. Uh, He does the same things, uh, but it's expanded. Now the uh, program is to assassinate suspects. Uh, So there are several places in the world, quite a few by now, in which uh, people like us uh, can be walking around the streets uh, wondering whether uh, a minute from now uh, there's going to be a uh, massive explosion uh, uh, directed by someone halfway across the world, uh, a, a drone attack, uh, which is uh, aimed at killing a suspect and whoever else happens to be around, so-called collateral damage, maybe us. Uh, that's the uh, Obama Global Assassination Program. And just in the last few weeks, it's been extended a little beyond. Uh, and. For the first time, got a little bit of criticism for this. It was extended to purposeful assassination of American citizens. It's the Olaki case, uh, and another American citizen who happened to be collateral damage. Well, that's a little bit of an extension. There's uh, an elite assumption that American citizens are human beings and have certain rights, uh, others are uh, what are sometimes called unpeople. Uh, term of the British diplomatic historian Mark Curtis in his discussions of the crimes of the British Empire. So there are people and unpeople, and the non-citizens are unpeople. So it's okay to assassinate them if they're suspects. But people—it's a little expanding it beyond. So there's a little criticism about that. Uh, and in many other ways, I won't go through the details. Obama has stretched uh, uh, violation of uh, civil liberties and uh, also expanded. Uh, war uh, to an extent beyond what I expected. In fact, uh, in Afghanistan, for example, uh, the U.S. and its allies, like Australia, uh, now have forces uh, well beyond the peak of Soviet forces during their occupation of Afghanistan. And in fact, last year was the uh, most violent year in Afghanistan uh, since, uh, for the for, since 2001. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. And in many ways, I think he's. Uh, We'll go through further details has gone beyond at least what i expected in uh, pursuing pretty much the same agendas with uh, it's not the whole story i mean there have been a few steps that i think are positive and uh, better than would have taken place under say a mccain administration like he appointed quite a good secretary of labor and some of the labor laws were beginning to be implemented a little, little bit. There are a few other things. But in general, the picture is not pretty, and uh, I think the strongest thing he has going for him and uh, uh, what may, in fact, win the election uh, is just that the opposition is practically off the planet. You know, I don't know if you've been following this. Uh, there's nothing like it in the history of parliamentary democracy that I can think of, and maybe for that reason he'll... re-elected with maybe parts of his base uh, voting for him but he's actually lost a large part of the uh, base that enthusiastically uh, 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 worked for him and uh, not just voted but organized and so on and are terribly disillusioned and with justice
0: we turn to Israel and Palestine Uh, and uh, of course there are many issues that that we could take up but let's look at prospects Um, You've said that under Obama, the Palestinians will be offered fried chicken, nothing more. What do you mean by that?
1: That phrase, fried chicken, uh, is actually not mine. It comes from the Netanyahu administration. In 1996, uh, uh, Shimon Peres was uh, prime minister, and he was then replaced by... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in a vote in 1996. Uh, in Paris's last press conference, uh, he uh, was asked, "Will there ever be a Palestinian state?" And he said, "There'll never be a Palestinian state. We'll never permit it." Now, actually, that wasn't well reported for an interesting reason. Uh, he was actually giving a press conference to a group of American correspondence, Newsweek and others. But there were some Israeli correspondents there too. And you can read about it in the Israeli press, in the Hebrew press there was no translations at that time. The reason it wasn't in the American press is that in the middle of uh, uh, Paris' press conference uh, news came through that a verdict was coming in the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, So all the American reporters scampered out of the room to get the important news and uh, Paris could make these comments to a small number of Israeli reporters. Well, that was the Paris administration. Then Netanyahu came in. This was his first term. He's now in his second term. Uh, and his, his uh, information minister was asked, uh, uh, what, what do they think about whether there could be a Palestinian state? And he answered, well, uh, he said, our plan is to leave a few fragments of the West Bank in Palestinian hands. We're not interested in them. We don't want to with the population, and if if they want to call it a state, we don't mind. Or they can call it fried chicken. Uh, that's uh, their conception of what a state would be, and that, that's essentially the conception that Obama has adopted. Uh, uh, for 35 years, the United States has uh, b- almost unilaterally uh, barred a diplomatic, negotiated settlement of the. Uh, Israel-Palestine conflict uh, along lines that are well-known and, in fact, accepted by virtually the entire world. It's an overwhelming international consensus. Uh, The basic form of it is a a two-state settlement on the internationally recognized border, the pre-June 67 border, uh, and then there's a phrase from uh, the formal U.S. position in the... Early 70s, when the US was still part of the world on this, with minor and mutual modifications to cease-fire lines, straighten it and so on. So that's the international consensus and uh, other provisions for other issues. The first th- That was vetoed by the United States at the Security Council in 1976, and I won't run through the record, but it stays about the same. Uh, Obama has pushed it even further. Uh, for example, his last veto, last February, uh, did get some international attention because uh, he was actually vetoing a Security Council resolution that called for the implementation of official U.S. policy, namely a barring settlement uh, advancement, which is, of course, illegal. Everyone agrees to that, even the state of Israel. Uh, uh, th- that was pretty extreme, so it got some notice. Uh, and in general, uh, Obama has taken a position uh, in many ways harsher and more extreme than... Previous American presidents, which is saying something. Now, if you think about the current situation and indeed the role of Australia, uh, th- there's a sort of a standard conventional view that the United States uh, has been a, a kind of an honest broker, uh, desperately trying to bring together uh, two recalcitrant opponents, uh, Israel and the Palestinians, Palestinians being the guilty ones most of the time. Uh, and trying to reach a settlement. It's just totally untrue. It's been, if if there were meaningful negotiations proceeding, uh, they would be organized by some neutral party, pick it as you wish, maybe Brazil, uh, respected state that's fairly neutral. And uh, on one side would be the United States and Israel. On the other side would be the rest of the world, uh, almost without exception. Uh, Well, the United States and its allies uh, don't want honest negotiations. They want negotiations which meet a variety of crucial preconditions. Now, again, the conventional view is the Palestinians are asking for preconditions and Israel uh, wants just negotiations, and, of course, the U.S. is neutral. But if you look at it closely, it's the U.S. and Israel who are imposing strict preconditions and important ones. Uh, One is that it has to be run by the United States. Uh, well, yeah, that's uh, run by uh, uh, an extreme, extremist rejectionist state, which has been blocking a settlement for 35 years. So that's precondition one. Uh, second precondition is that Israel must have the right to continue expanding settlements. That's a precondition. And it's a precondition, again, I stress, it's not in dispute that the settlements themselves are illegal, and uh, certainly expansion of them is multiply so. Expansion in what's called Jerusalem, vastly expanded region uh, annexed by Israel, that's doubly illegal today's announcements, for example. It's doubly illegal because it's also in violation of explicit sec- Security Council uh, demands that nothing be done to change the status of Jerusalem. It goes back to 1968, In fact, the U.S., uh, which at that time was part of the world, uh, 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 voted with with everyone, unanimous vote. Uh, So it's doubly illegal. But that's a precondition. Uh, uh, Furthermore, Israel has made it clear, you can read it in today's papers, uh, that the expansion is proceeding in regions which will uh, be annexed to Israel, illegally, of course. Well, that's a further precondition. They're already establishing the borders, officially, uh, which they're going to illegally annex. That's another precondition. You know, and under those uh, conditions, preconditions, of co- everyone who has a gray cell functioning, and certainly the Palestinians, can see that nothing will happen. Uh, negotiations of this kind can go on indefinitely, uh, while Israel, with U.S. support, uh, diplomatic, military, economic support, uh, simply takes over what's uh, left of the what is, they don't want in the West Bank, uh, drive the, let the population sort of rot in these fragments, uh, and it'll be a kind of fried chicken, if they want to call it a state, okay. Uh, also, the U.S. and Israel insist that it be separated from Gaza. That's been U.S.-Israeli policy since the early 90s, in explicit violation of the Oslo agreements, which insist that uh, Gaza and the West Bank are a single territorial entity. But Israel and the United States have been trying hard to separate them since the early 90s, an interesting story, no time to go into it here, but you should know about it. And uh, the reasons are pretty obvious. That means if any fragments are left to Palestinians in the West Bank, they'll be completely imprisoned uh, with no access to the outside world. Uh, They'll be imprisoned between these regions annexed Israel in the West Bank, uh, Israel, and the Jordanian dictatorship. Uh, Gaza would be the only uh, uh, access to the outside, so of course, it has to be separated. Uh, those are the preconditions, and you can understand why. You can ask whether the Palestinian Authority made a, a wise or an unwise tactical move in uh, trying to approach the United Nations to get around this, uh, but it's perfectly understandable that they would seek uh, some way to get around uh, uh, farcical negotiations of this kind with their obvious consequences.
0: No, have a drink because I'd like to move on to talking about money next. About uh, money. Money, okay.
1: You're getting crashed. Wealth, mm-hmm. wealth. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: seems that the simple narrative um, that's. Be- uh, that has been that that it's in all our interests that the rich get richer, because that's how they create more jobs for the rest of us. Um, Is the Occupy Wall Street movement a sign that there's a a, a widespread shift in that perception? Where do you think the movement will go? What effect, what impact do you think it'll have?
1: Well, first of all, we should ask about this perception. That is the perception of the media, uh, the corporate boardrooms, the editorial boards, uh, elite opinion, established elite opinion. It's certainly not the general population. It's certainly not the view of the general population. I mean, the United States is a very heavily polled society, and for good reasons. Uh, it's a business-run society, business wants to keep its finger on the public pulse. That's how you know how to run propaganda, advertising, and so on. So we know a lot about public opinion in the United States, and the careful polls are worth looking at. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. Uh, The population overwhelmingly disagrees with this and has for a long time. Uh, So right now, for example, uh, the population overwhelmingly thinks that, first of all, that the deficit is not the serious problem, it's a minor one. The joblessness is. But if you pay attention to the deficit, uh, the way to deal with it is uh, higher taxes on the wealthy and preserving social benefits. The decision of the bipartisan commission is probably going to be the opposite, uh, but that's part of the huge gap between public opinion and policy, which lies at the basis of the anger and frustration that's just sweeping over the country. So first of all, that's not the public perception. Uh, Secondly, the public is correct. That's not the way jobs come. And we see it right in front of us at this minute. I mean, uh, uh, corporate profits are reaching records. Uh, They they don't know what to do with their money. Are they creating jobs? No, they're not creating jobs. Uh, They may, maybe they're creating jobs in uh, Northern Mexico or in China where you can, uh, labor's cheap, can be exploited and people can be treated brutally. Uh, but they're not doing it in the United States. In fact, it's worth noticing, if you read the business press carefully, you'll notice that there are signs that corporate investment might come back to the United States. The reason is that uh, working conditions and wages in the southern states, like, say, Mississippi, are becoming so rotten that they can actually maybe begin to compete with... uh, um, you know, Foxconn, kind of prison camps in China where uh, people work uh, under horrendous conditions. So maybe jobs will come back. Uh, that's the way uh, uh, putting money in the pockets of the rich might create jobs. Uh, furthermore, just to make it clear that this is not just a temporary phenomenon, there was a period not that long ago of very extensive uh, economic growth in the United States, in fact, much of the world, the 50s and the 60s, uh, when it was still basically under sort of New Deal-style you know, social democratic uh, uh, structures, uh, that was the period of the greatest growth in American history. And uh, taxes on the rich were far higher than they are now, but there was economic growth for many reasons. large part of it, uh, state intervention, uh, but uh, it, was, it was real it was extensive. Uh, if, if, if you're you know, a, a, a businessman who wants to invest, uh, you might invest if there's demand, but you don't invest because you have money in your pocket. I mean, everyone knows that. Now, this is just an elite myth which has been concocted and which the population has never accepted, rightly. And the Occupy movement, yes, it's expressing it, but I don't really think it's a shift. The shift is that uh, public opinion is finally reaching so having some kind of an expression, an organized activity. Well, how far can this go? It's an important question. It's, uh, in my view, an extremely important movement. It's the first large-scale active uh, response to uh, 30 years of uh, what's called neoliberal globalization, which have been a disaster for just almost everywhere where these cunts have been applied. Uh, the United States as well. It's a worse disaster in you know, Egypt or uh, Mexico, but it's a disaster in the United States too. Uh, people are f- angry about it, upset about it. They haven't had a voice in the political system, or certainly not in the media, and maybe a few marginal people. Uh, but uh, and now there's a, an active, engaged, popular movement that's uh, beginning to express those concerns and might go on, we'll see, It'll obviously uh, meet a strong backlash of repression. That's uh, predictable. If it can withstand it and overcome it, could make a could be of historic significance.
0: Uh, well, you mentioned growth, and that's another term that has a, a, a terrific ring to it. I mean, what could be bad about growth? We don't challenge the notion that that growth is good. Um, but are we breeding and consuming our way? to extinction, and and what's it going to take for us to recalibrate our expectations in a finite world?
1: Well, first of all, again, we should be careful to think about uh, consumerism and the consumption culture. Uh, That's, to to a large extent, artificially created, and not my opinion. You go back to the, uh, say, a century, to the origins of the uh, public relations industry, including the advertising industry. It's an interesting history. Back around a century ago, in the freest countries in the world, England and the United States, there was a recognition, conscious, articulated recognition on elite sectors, that enough freedom has been won by popular struggle uh, so that people can't be controlled by force anymore. So there have to be other ways to control them. And the other way to control them is control of uh, attitudes and opinions. That's when you get the call for manufacture of consent on the part of progressive intellectuals, uh, the Wilsonian, Roosevelt progressives, and so on. We have to have manufacture of consent, but we also have to have creation of wants. People have to be driven to the more superficial things of life, like fashionable consumption. Actually, I'm quoting from the business press, uh, because that way we can control people. If we can fabricate wants, it's the term used by the great political economist Thorstein Veblen, who understood this and wrote about it. If we can fabricate wants, create wants, we can trap people. We can trap people into consumerism, debt, and so on. And it's very interesting the way this was done. It was, if there was time, I could go into it. Uh, so, To a large extent, we live in a culture which, uh, in a society in which enormous resources are devoted to fabricating wants. I mean, if you take a look at, uh, I presume it's the same here as in the United States, if you look at uh, a television directed to infants, two-year-olds, it's already trying to cr- create a culture of uh, demand, demand goods. Uh, In fact, there's now an academic discipline, part of applied psychology, which is concerned with nagging, literally. The reason is the advertising industry recognized a couple of decades ago that there's a big part of the population that doesn't have any money, so they can't buy, so we gotta do something to make them buy. And the way they, that's children, and the way they can buy is by nagging their parents. Uh, so let's say, I, I got to have that video cam, whatever it is. And uh, 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 and so the advertising aimed at children, uh, television and so on, is uh, devises various various types of nagging that can be used for different kinds of purchases. Well, the point is, the idea is to trap infants, children, into a culture of fabricated wants so they can then be trapped into a consumer culture and then they can be effectively controlled along with manufacturing of opinions. All very conscious, incidentally. There's some quite good studies of this if you're interested. One very good book by uh, a Canadian... uh, uh, law professor Joel Bacon has just come out, I forget what's called, something about stealing childhood or something like that. It's a very concerted effort. But quite apart from that, suppose we are, to some extent, trapped in it. Uh, how, how do we react to the fact that, of course, as you say, it's a finite world, finite resources, uh, we're going to hit limits? Well, there's two ways. Uh, one is the way of the lemmings. Uh, we just march happily toward the cliff, and then when it turns out there's a cliff, we go over it and we're finished. Well, that's one way to react, and uh, that's what the business world is driving us to for the purposes of short-term profit.
0: But they're going to fall off too.
1: They'll fall off too, but you don't think about that. If you're a court, li- literally. So, for example, in the United States, quite openly, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, you know, the main business lobby, American Petroleum Institute and others, are very openly, they say it, uh, uh, organizing propaganda efforts to convince people that uh, global warming is a liberal myth. And it's affected popular opinion. You can see the polls reacting as the campaign continues. Now, the people who are running this campaign, as individuals, uh, probably share your attitudes. And maybe they're members of the Sierra Club and they contribute to uh, you know, environmental programs. But in the capacity of a CEO of a corporation, you have a duty that you must perform. If you don't perform it, you're out and someone else is in. This is an institutional property, much harder to deal with. The property is you have to maximize short-term profit and market share. In fact, that's a legal requirement in Anglo-American law. Uh, if you don't do that, you're displaced, somebody else comes in. Uh, so there's an institutional imperative to destroy the planet, to march off the cliff. That's a serious problem. It's a, it traces back to well-known inefficiencies of market systems which you can you know, probably learn about in your first economics course. They ignore externalities, technically. And that's a built-in institutional property, and it does lead to uh, Uh, the leaders of the lemmings uh, knowing that they're going to fall off the cliff too. But we don't have to be lemmings. I mean, we can deal with these problems uh, sensibly. Uh, Consuming more of the world's resources is the advertising industry's image of happiness, uh, but it doesn't have to be ours, and I think any sensible person knows that it isn't.
0: Uh, It makes me think we're not... <clears throat> coming across as being very smart here but uh, I do want to get onto the brain but um, okay. before before we do that uh, can we talk about WikiLeaks um, for a moment uh, Julian Assange has lost his extradition appeal uh, recently our Prime Minister dismissed him on um, the public broadcaster uh, as just anarchic um, the, the implication is that all sensible people know anarchism is ridiculous and irresponsible. Common sense, right?
1: It depends what you mean by anarchism. If you mean by anarchism, the media image, which goes back uh, to the late 19th century, uh, anarchism just means uh, people running wild, breaking windows, and so on. Okay, that's, uh, and that conception of anarchism, I would agree. But there's another conception, which is the actual conception, uh, which is the core of, the, of traditional anarchist thought and activism. It goes back to the Enlightenment, in fact. Literally, it's, it comes pretty much out of uh, the origins of classical liberalism, uh, which one great anarchist uh, thinker, Rudolf Rocker, narco-syndicalist uh, uh, analyst, argued, and I think with some plausibility, that uh, classical liberalism, which grew out of enlightenment ideals, and incidentally, is not is rather different when you actually read Adam Smith from the imagery that's concocted. Uh, but the classical liberal ideas, as he put it, uh, uh, ran aground on the reefs of capitalism. It was barred, it was blocked by capitalism, couldn't survive capitalism. And he argues that uh, uh, his particular Strain of anarchism and syndicalism was the natural outgrowth of classical liberalism in an uh, age where you have to overcome uh, uh, the, the barriers introduced by the rise of capitalism, later corporate capitalism. And I think there's some sense to that. The core of the anarchist tradition, which again has enlightenment roots, is to ask, is to raise questions about authority hierarchy and domination and to point out that they are not self-justifying whatever structure they are. You know, uh, uh, master-slave, patriarchal uh, husband, uh, obedient wife, uh, 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 imperial power dominating the world. Whatever the structure of authority uh, is, it is not self-justifying and it should be challenged. And if it cannot justify itself, it should be dismantled. That's the core principle of anarchism. In that sense, I think everyone should be an anarchist. And if you look at the... Uh, uh, notice I say, if it cannot be justified. I think there are cases where a justification can be given. So just to take a personal example. Uh, I once, only once, thankfully, uh, slapped my little daughter on her hand. She didn't like it. You can ask her now what she thinks about it. She's grown up. Now she slaps my hand. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the occasion was when she was about three years old, and uh, we had an electric stove. And as you know, the, the grills or whatever they're called, they stay hot after they turn black. And she was reaching to put her hand on the stove, so I grabbed her hand and slapped it. Uh, one and only time. I th- think that was... you can give a justification for that. But it takes effort to justify... It was an act of authority, of course. Uh, you have to be, work pretty hard to justify uh, structures of authority and domination. Usually they're not self-justified. And as moral consciousness expands, which I think it does over time, Uh, There have been repeated challenges to these structures in our own lifetimes, in fact, Uh, and uh, uh, I think they're moves in the right direction. And that's the basic anarchist conception. It leads on to a conception of social order in which voluntary free association, uh, creative work under one's own control, and so on, uh, assume major proportions and revise the nature of the society actually these questions are coming up in the occupy movements for long-range commitments and i think that's good that's the way uh, the sh- social moral evolution should go
0: i don't think julie is here but she might listen to the podcast um <laughs> uh, moving on to uh media, free speech and democracy, Noam. uh, It's probably fair to say that there's uh, probably no support among media organisations for more regulation. You're a great advocate of free speech, you've also written about media bias, Um, but given the critical role of media in a democracy, why shouldn't the uh, general news and current uh, comment media be subjected to the same requirement as public broadcasters to provide balance? So if a public broadcaster is lined up in a spectrum of other media, many pumping out redneck propaganda, um, where's the level playing field? And isn't this an example of where freedoms, in fact, lead to a lack of diversity and indeed undermine democratic principles? And in the end, isn't it in fact money that's doing the talking?
1: Uh, money is, of course, doing the talking. That's uh, inherent in what, what I was just talking about. You know, for example, fabrication of a consumer culture. That's uh, manufacturing consent. That's money talking. No secret about it. Uh, as for balance in public media, I can't comment on Australia, but I'll talk about the United States. Or, uh, uh, there's There is a kind of balance in the public media. They're different than, say, Fox News. Uh, On the other hand, the balance uh, is of a very specific kind, which is actually taught in journalism schools. So if you go to one of the better journalism schools in the United States, you're taught a concept of objectivity, how you can be an objective reporter. You're an objective reporter if you, and an honest reporter, if you report accurately what's going on the phrase is inside the beltway, meaning inside Washington circles. If you report that accurately, you say the Democrats say this, the Republicans say that, and so on, that's balanced. It happens, if you look, that that balance excludes the opinions and often the overwhelming opinions of the large majority of the public. I gave an example, Uh, and it's not the only one by any means, this an enormous gap between public opinion and public policy. And an objective reporter, and the balance in the uh, public media, is to present the views of uh, elite sectors uh, accurately. Again, you know, Democrats say this, Republicans say that. If the large majority of the population is against it all, that would be subjective, biased, and so on, if you... uh, uh presented it so i think there are questions to raise about the notion balance which is not but turn to your actual question it's certainly true that money is going to talk personally i'd be against efforts to regulate that i don't because where would the regulation be coming from well be coming from state power but i don't i think we should be very cautious about uh, 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 assigning the state the power to determine uh, what's said and what isn't said I think we have to go after the core problem, which is the fact that money is talking. Uh, The fact that there's uh, such a disparity of uh, wealth and power that uh, a democratic system simply can't function properly. And that shows up at every point from, uh, for example, uh, the United States in the last 30 years has become rather extreme in this respect, but it's an extreme version of something that exists generally so, for example, now, in the, for the last roughly 30 years in the United States, the you know, Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal period, uh, elections increasingly are simply bought, uh, literally. You can predict the outcome of an election quite well by just looking at the amount of campaign spending, and you can predict the policies that are pursued by asking about where that campaign spending comes from. So it should surprise no one that uh, Obama, despite his nice talk, is essentially uh, pursuing uh, the policies of a small financial uh, elite. Yeah, that's where his funding came from. That's where it's going to come from in the next election. Uh, Actually, this goes back very far. There's good studies of it by fine political economists, but it's been very sharply exaggerated in the neoliberal structures, Uh, not just in the United States, everywhere. Uh, by now, it's reached the point where even in Congress uh, the, the old traditions of parliamentary functioning have been pretty much dissolved. So it used to be the case that uh, someone in Congress uh, would be get a position of influence, say chair of a committee, uh, on the basis of seniority and performance. You know, a lot of questions about that, but at least that was the idea. Uh, that's been pretty much thrown to the winds if you want a committee chair at this point you have to buy it from the party you have to put money in the party coffers then maybe you'll get the chair now that simply drives members of congress into the uh, pockets of uh, the corporate sector by now mostly the financial sector and further erodes democracy and what you describe in the media is part of that Uh, incidentally it holds of not just the media the I mean, I, my, I do write about the media, but personally, I don't think it's very different from the general intellectual community. If you look at the elite media, you know, the opinion that's sometimes called the agenda-setting media, the ones that provide the framework that smaller newspapers adhere to, you know, New York Times, CBS News, and so on, those, uh, I don't think there's much different difference between their conceptions and their boundaries and those that you find in, say, the academic world, you know, they share the same uh, general academic culture. It's, it's easier to study the media than to study scholarship, because you know, it's just easier to carry out uh, careful analyses and so on and so forth. But I've done a lot on this. There's, I've written a lot about it, if you're interested. But I don't think it's very different. And uh, it all reflects, uh, it reflects to a substantial extent The actual distribution of power in the society Uh, that's uh, an observation that's considered radical but as old as Adam Smith I mean Adam Smith was not the uh, caricature that you read about in uh, elementary school Uh, Smith for example recognized that in England the England of his day uh, the people who basically owned the society uh, the merchants and manufacturers uh, he said they are the principal architects of government policy, and they design policy so that their own interests are very well served, however grievous the impact on others, including the people of England. Well, you know, this is wealth of nations, 1770s. And that's basically correct. Now it's not merchants and manufacturers, it's uh, multinational corporations, uh, you know, investment firms, and so on, but the same Principle holds, and it holds in a increasingly in an exaggerated form under the impact of uh, neoliberal ideology to an ex- almost grotesque form. Well, that's uh, these are real problems, sort of deep social problems, and I think we have to go after those uh, rather than calling on uh, state efforts to regulate speech and uh, uh, publication.
0: We better talk about the brain gnome before we run out of time. Okay. So, what I'd like to know is why the study of how we acquire language was important to you, and uh, what what has it revealed to us in a broad sense about how the mind works.
1: Well, you know, traditionally, uh, the capacity for language has been understood to be almost a defining property of the human species. If you go back, say, to the to, say, take Cartesian philosophy, the 17th century dominant philosophy that, out of which grew the Enlightenment and so on, uh, for Descartes, it literally was the defining property. Uh, remember, for Descartes, it was critical to distinguish uh, uh, creatures with minds, mind, soul, or minds, from those who didn't have them. The ones who didn't have souls and minds were machines. That was the mechanical philosophy that was the basis for early modern science. They were machines. Uh, Those with souls and minds were human. Well, how would you determine whether some creature uh, has a mind? The proposals that come from Descartes and his followers were by testing their language abilities. You ask, uh, do they have this uh, fundamental uh, creative capacity that humans have and that they exhibit in their normal uh, use of language. What's the creative capacity? Uh, I think they captured the essence of it pretty accurately. It's the ability, which all humans share, and no, uh, according to them, no animal or, machi- or machine shares, uh, to create and produce freely uh, new expressions uh, which are appropriate to situations but not caused by situations. They're not the result of stimuli coming from the outside, or for that matter, even internal stimuli. There's a big difference between being caused and being appropri- appropriate. It's a crucial difference, a hard one to capture, but we recognize it. So they're and uh, the, this innovative behaviour has no limits. It can go on indefinitely. In fact, most uh, linguistic performance is new sentences, uh, maybe never produced in the history of the world, or in your own experience, at least. And they're also intelligible to others They who recognise, yeah, I could have expressed that thought in that way if it had come to mind. Well, that capacity is sort of a creative aspect of language use it was regarded, and I think plausibly, as a kind of a core component of uh, human uh, cognition, uh, human morality, moral judgment, and, uh, in fact, uh, human uh, activity. This was connected, especially in the early days of classical liberalism, uh, people like uh, Smith, uh, von Humboldt, and others. Uh, This was connected with the belief that... uh, Humans basically have a need, a fundamental need, to carry out creative work under their own control. This was put very nicely by Wilhelm von Humboldt, the founder of the modern university system, also a great linguist and one of the founders of classical liberalism. Uh, he, His point was, the way he put it, is that uh, if an artisan it creates a beautiful piece of work under, on command, uh, we may admire what he did, but we despise what he is, namely a tool in the hands of others. On the other hand, if that artisan produces the same uh, beautiful work under his own control and initiative, we admire not only the piece of work, but also um, uh, the, the artisan himself, who it is. Actually, Adam Smith said the same thing. Uh, everyone has read the first paragraph of uh, Wealth of Nations, where, you know, the talks about uh, the butcher does this and the baker does that and everybody's happy. It comes out in favour of division of labour. Uh, very few people have gone on a couple hundred pages into this rather dense book uh, when Smith returns to the notion of division of labour and says that division of labour cannot be tolerated because it will turn people into creatures as stupid and ignorant as a human being can possibly be, uh, just routinely under command, uh, performing the same actions over and over. And he says in any civilized society, uh, the government's going to have to step in to do something about it, Um, education, you know, other things. Uh, If you take a look at the scholarly editions of... Wealth of Nations, say, the University of Chicago Bicentennial Scholarly Edition. You take a look under Division of Labor, and you'll notice this passage isn't even listed in the index, uh, the most important passage about division of labor. It's not... I'm sure it was not intended deceit. I think they just couldn't understand it. It's just an unintelligible view in the modern conception, so you kind of read the words, but they don't get beyond the eyes. Uh, and, uh, uh, but but that conception is really fundamental to cl- classical liberalism. I think it's correct. And uh, uh, they related it uh, loosely to the creative aspect of language use. Well, we're very far from having answers to any of these questions, I should say. Uh, but there are steps towards it. And the major steps do happen to be in the study of language. doesn't... Uh, there are Applications, thoughts about it elsewhere, but that's where the main work is. And some uh, rather surprising things have come out, I think. Uh, it's sort of useful to compare what's been done in the last uh, roughly 60 years to the early, very early days of modern science. Uh, one of the great breakthroughs in modern science, say Galileo, the Galilean period, was to be willing to be puzzled about things that seemed obvious. That's a tremendous step forward. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for literally thousands of years, it had been accepted by important scientists uh, that we have answers to some very simple questions. Like, uh, when I hold this thing up, if I let it go, uh, the cup's going to drop. If this happened to be boiling water inside, and I lift the lid, the steam will go up. So the cup drops and the steam rises. Uh, Well, Aristotle had an answer to why they're seeking their natural place. And that was taken to be the appropriate answer for thousands of years. When Galileo and others uh, began to be said, let's let's be puzzled about this. Let's just not take it for granted because it comes from authority. And when you start being puzzled about it, modern science begins. You see, you don't know the answers. And when you try to find out the answers, they break down. It shows that all all sorts of intuitions are just wildly off. And you finally, out of this, slowly comes modern science. And I think that's what's been happening in the study of language since roughly the early 1950s, approximately. Uh, A lot of things that seemed completely obvious were looked at carefully, and they all turned out to be extremely puzzling. Uh, so I'll take a simple example, which has kind of evolved in industry of analysis. Uh, uh, take the sentence, a small, short sentence, uh, um, can eagles that fly swim? Okay, we all understand it. Uh, we know that the word can is associated with swim, not fly. We're asking, can they swim, not "Can they fly? Uh, similarly, we can say things like... Uh, are eagles that fly swimming. But we can't say, are eagles that, swimming, that flying swim. Actually, if you think about it, that's a fine thought. It says, are the eagles that are flying uh, uh, swimming too. So are eagles that flying swim. But you just can't say it that way. That thought can't be expressed in that form. Well, you know, a rather, if you think about it, it was taken for granted for forever that that was just sort of intuitively obvious. But if you think about it, it's not at all obvious. Uh, Aristotle defined language as uh, sound with meaning. Well, what the pursuit of this inquiry tends to show is that that's not correct, that actually language is meaning with sound, and it need not be sound. It can be sign or some other mode of externalization. That's a big difference. It means that the core character of language is the uh, set of principles that yield structured expressions and assign them a meaning. And that part of language is probably, we can't show it yet, but it looks like it's uniform among humans. It doesn't seem to vary much, and if we knew enough, maybe at all. It's just a core property of humans that we have this set of principles that yields an unbounded array of structural expressions that have a semantic interpretation that means something. And uh, uh, when you look into it, it's pretty strange what it means. But uh, that just seems to be shared among humans altogether. There's no known difference among uh, uh, remote uh, tribes and Papua who haven't had other human contact for tens of thousands of years and uh, children who grow up here. And if you interchange them at infancy, they'll grow into their own society without any problem. Uh, so that seems to be a core property of human nature. The externalization, the, the, what we call the sound part, is marginal. And it also follows from that that communication is marginal. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, like a, a dogma among uh, even scientists who write about these topics, that language is basically a means of communication and evolved as a means of communication you look at current publications on evolution of language, that's just taken for granted. It apparently is all false. It turns out that from the closer analysis of language that it's actually a tool for thought. It's a means of expressing thought. And on the side, you can use it for communication, as you can use anything else for communication. that gives... Actually, if you just introspect for a minute, that shouldn't be surprising. Just ask yourself... uh, What is most of your own use of language? Well, if you introspect, it turns out that, you know, probably 99% of it is talking to yourself. Uh, Talking to yourself is not communicating. You can't, it takes a tremendous act of will not to talk to yourself. Uh, Try it, you know, it's very hard. Uh, You're walking down the street, you're talking to yourself in fragments of sentences. Uh, it goes on all night, unfortunately, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, and sometimes it's used for communication. But uh, even the external part is not much. Well, that's a radically different conception of fundamental human nature, and it does lead to in other directions, like at least exploring these thoughts about creative work, about moral judgment, and so on. And I think. You know, i wouldn't i don't exaggerate this is by no means uh, universally accepted even among scientists but i think that's the direction in which work has been moving and i, I think it is a way of finding out basic things about what kind of creatures we are
0: no um, thank you but we are running out of time and a, a decision has to be made uh there's so much left to ask you <laughs> uh, we haven't spoken about a universal moral grammar, we haven't spoken about uh, free will, the existence of free will, and I, and I also want to know what, what what the sources of your own inspiration are. But um, we also uh, need to take questions from the floor, so I propose a referendum. Mm-hmm. We have ten minutes left. Would you like us to continue uh, with these questions? or? Mm-hmm. Okay, those who object, okay, <laughs> all right, thank you. Um, no, just, just quickly, I didn't hear that, sorry. Oh, uh, look, I'm sorry, but I think, you know, being a democracy, you've been outvoted. <laughs> Maybe Professor Chomsky will take one from you personally at the end. Would you be happy with that? Um, so, uh, just quickly, Noam, if, if possible, please. Um, uh, you're, you're an institute professor at the most distinguished engineering institute in the world. Um, uh, can you comment briefly about the role of elite academic institutions? They don't appear to be very radical places, but you've been there now forever half a century, can they contribute to social change or are they a barrier to change?
1: Well, my own institution's a good, a, a good example. It is, I think it's fair to say, the greatest uh, engineering science-based university in the world, and it was back in the 1950s when I got there. Uh, in the 1950s, first of all, it was almost entirely Pentagon-funded. Uh, but contrary to what a lot of people believe, that was the freest period. The Pentagon didn't care what you were doing. Uh, during the 1960s, my own inst- my own the laboratory in which I worked was hundred percent funded funded by the three armed services. It was also the center of anti-war resistance. I don't mean protest, I mean resistance. that meant support for deserters, uh, uh, tax resistance, uh, technically criminal activities. I was coming up for a long jail sentence, other. Colleagues were involved in this, too. It was all coming out of the same... Uh, it was the main academic center in the, in the country on, on this. Uh, that was coming from the same laboratory that was 100% funded by the three armed services. Uh, that uh, has to do with a fact about the uh, advanced economies, which is pretty well understood by participants, you know, engineers. It doesn't seem to be well understood by economists or the general public. And that is that the modern economy depends very heavily on massive state intervention. If you use a computer, the Internet, uh, satellites, uh, microelectronics, the uh, information technology, IT revolution, and so on, you're uh, uh, feeding off of uh, public funding and public initiative. Uh, and, And the Pentagon understood that. It was the funnel for raiding the taxpayer under false pretenses you know the russians are coming uh so it wasn't wasn't democratic at all but it was essentially telling the public you pay us we're going to create the technology of the future they didn't say that but that's what was happening so they didn't really care what you were doing you want to overthrow the government that's your business just do your work you know but uh, that was a although that was the fact that was a very small part of the institute most of the institute was extremely conventional. You know, people did their work; they didn't ask questions. You just developed science and technology. Uh, uh, it's kind of, you know, this Tom Lehrer's song about Werner von Braun, which you may know. Uh, when the rock, where the rockets come, uh, the rockets go up. Uh, where they come down is not my business. Uh, and that was essentially the uh, conception. Well, there was a small group of students, very small, maybe a dozen or so in the 1960s who began to be caught up in the general uh, student activism in the 60s and it worked quite hard to try ch- to change the atmosphere i won't go through the details but they succeeded succeeded to the point that uh, by say the end of the 669 uh, 69 it got to the point where actually the administration called a day off uh, just to deal f- to focus on the seminars, discussions, uh, talks, and so on, about the uses of technology. Should we be concerned with how science and technology are used? And a lot of uh, self-criticism came out of that. Uh, quite important groups formed, Union of Concerned Scientists, and so on. It just changed the atmosphere of the place. And by now, those are the common attitudes. What was once, you just do your work and shut up, Uh, has become we have to think about what we're doing and why. And that expands into other forms of social activism too in all sorts of ways. I mean, one very dramatic change at MIT, you can just see it walking down the halls. Uh, When I got there in the 50s, it was uh, all white, uh, male, well-dressed, conventional, do your work. Uh, You walk down the halls today, it's like... universities elsewhere. Uh, Half women, a third minorities, uh, informal dress, which is not insignificant. That means informal relationships. uh, And a lot of activism. Those are quite big changes. Uh, They came about largely through the activism of small groups of students, a couple faculty, but mostly students, who just uh, uh, essentially organized the place through their own activities. A lot of interesting actions took place which changed things. So what is a university? Well, you know, it depends on the people in it. Uh, they can turn it, uh, these are very free institutions in many ways, There's a lot of things wrong with them, but I don't want to exaggerate. But among the institutions of the society, these are perhaps the most free. And that's particularly true of the sciences. Uh, in the sciences, you, you just can't institute external controls and expect them to survive. You could you could see that in the old Soviet Union. You know, biology couldn't survive under external controls. Uh, the sciences are based on... I mean, they're basically anarchist in the sense that I was describing before. Uh, students are expected, in a good scientific university or courses, they're not expected to just repeat what they were told. They're expected to challenge. In fact, a lot of the new ideas and innovation comes from that. So a student's expected to say, you know, I don't believe what you're saying. And here's an argument to the contrary. That's good. That's what you try to encourage. And if you didn't try to encourage that, the sciences would die. Uh, so there's a kind of like a built-in dynamic that kind of frees them up. It doesn't mean that they're going to go be to the point of raising questions about the use of technology in science. No, they didn't. And in fact, they're classic. Crazed examples of this, which people should think about. So, take say uh, uh, creating the atom bomb. Uh, there were two main uh, institutions in the United States: Chicago and Los Alamos. Uh, Chicago, they were basically constructing, you know, the materials. Uh, in Los Alamos, they were turning it into a weapon. Now, you go to places like Chicago and Los Alamos. I mean, they had uh, some of the most Outstanding intellectuals in the world. Uh, these were m- many of them European emigres who were, you know, the Einstein types. Uh, very impressive people, uh, cultured, uh, literate, uh, uh, most, many of them what we would call pretty radical, uh, interested in music, uh, the arts, uh, thinking about things. They were working in closed environments in which about the only thing that they pursued was how to carry out huge, massive destruction in Japan. They were pretty sure they were never going to use it in Germany. In Japan, uh, which might end the human race, uh, because they weren't really sure. And it was single-minded pursuit of that objective. Now, if you look closely, the first protests, questioning, came out of Chicago, not Los Alamos. And the reason was that the Chicago phase of the operation was completed earlier. They were providing the materials, and, of course, that was prior to turning it into a weapon. And it wasn't until their phase of the scientific activities was over that some of them began to raise questions about what in the heck are we doing. And things like the Pugwash Movement and so on grew out of that. At Los Alamos, it didn't happen until after the bomb went off literally Uh, and when they began reflecting about it later there was a lot of justified self-criticism i mean here you had you know the most amazing group of intellectuals you could imagine very lots of broad interests all sorts of things and they were single-mindedly pursuing a highly dangerous maybe potentially lethal activities not just for the victims, but even beyond, without thinking about it. Well, that can happen too. And the question about what a university can be or what academic life or free intellectual life can be, these questions always arise. You can get up, get caught in what was called the sweetness of the problem. It's a sweet problem, we really want to solve it. Uh, You can easily get caught up in that. Or you can ask, what am I doing? Uh, what's the purpose of it? Uh, what's the right way to distribute your energies in the world and in life? And there's a lot to say about that, so I don't think there's a simple answer to your question.
0: No, and... Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> My next question was about free will, and I've been contemplating how I can possibly turn it into a multiple choice, where the answer is either yes or no, but I don't think that's going to work, folks, so... I think that's where we're going to have to leave it. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming. I'd like to thank the many of you who sent in questions. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, the inimitable Professor Stuart Rees, his uh, executive officer, Dr. Hannah Middleton, Dr. Peter Slezak, Uh, Dr. Clinton Fernandez, who is uh, a fountain of knowledge and his uh, generosity knows no bounds. And, of course, I'd like to thank Professor Noam Chomsky. I know that um, you would not travel to Australia for some time because you were uh, taking care of your wife at home. And in, uh, in times when we have outsourced caring for our dying loved ones. I think that is the ultimate act of humanity in personal life. You continue to be a beacon for how to live. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks
1: for doing that.